It is so good to see you again tonight, and we will be closing out on the Bible study that we've been looking at now for, this is the fifth week, and this is a Bible study that the Lord has given me and I've, you know, put together, and it's sort of a, a measuring tool to help us see where we are in relation to Christ. How close are we to Christ? And God wants us to draw ever closer. No matter how close we are, God wants us to draw even closer. And we're going to be looking at the last two rings tonight. The number three and the number one. The disciple that was the closest to the Lord. And we're going to be looking at these and looking at the characteristics uh, of, uh, of these. And does everyone have an outline? Everyone has an outline. This is uh, part four, if you have that. And uh, I think we had a few of the number three left, if somebody needed one, uh, from last week. Uh, but we're looking... Uh, tonight at, at, at the last two. Now, we've gone through the world, and we've gone through the other proximity circles. You know, we've gone through the crowds, the 5,000, the 70, the 120, and last week we looked at the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And tonight we're going to be looking at the three and the one, and finishing it up. And as a matter of fact, I just finished writing. I had this whole thing put together, uh, all the slides and everything, but I never did have the conclusion for it. And the other day, Bonnie had was uh, one of her devotion books, and she brought it. She said, look at this devotion. I want you to read it. She made me a copy, and I read it, and then I got to looking at it, and I thought, hmm, this is the icing on the cake, so to speak. So I went in and, and, and wrote this and, and got all the end of it ready. But we want to look at, first of all, at the three. Now, if you notice, we're all the way down. We only have one circle left after the three. We've come a long way from the world. And through the crowds and looking at the characteristics of each. And when we look at the characteristics tonight of the one, I think you'll see why that Christ was so close to John. One of the innermost circles, you know, uh, is the three. We call this the uh, cabinet of three. We also refer to this as the triumphant. Now, a triumphant, that's nothing more than a Latin term that means three, a, a group of three powerful people. The triumphant of the Westward Church of God would be the three pastors, or the three amigos, whatever you want to call us, you know. But the, these three were the triumphant uh, of all Jesus' disciples. These were the three, Simon Peter, James the Less, and John the Revelator, as we, we call them. Peter, James, and John. These are the three. And these three represent those who follow Jesus to places of glory and suffering. These were the confidants of Christ. What is a confidant? Does anybody in here have a confidant? Sure you do. Most everyone. What is a confidant? The what? That is the one person you can go to and confide in. You can tell them anything and it won't be on Facebook tomorrow. You can trust them with your life. This is your confidant. And this is the way it was with, with, with Christ these were the confidence of, uh, confidants of Christ. He talked to these three 
and revealed more to these three disciples than any of the rest of them. And what makes that so? Christ entrusted them with insights. He entrusted them with experiences that the rest of the twelve apparently they, they were unprepared to hear it, unprepared to know it. They just couldn't face it. But Jesus shared more with these three than with any of the others. And two of the examples, let, let me share with you. Two of the examples, that's uh, getting your attention. That just happens every now and then. Uh, that's to make you think that rapture is about to take place. <laughs> but if we look in Matthew chapter 17 we find one place that Jesus took these three that no one else were allowed to go and this as it at the transfiguration if we go to Matthew chapter 17 we'll start reading it says now after six days Jesus took Peter James and John those three And led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. What does that mean, he was transfigured? What? So he was, another word we could use to say he was glorified. I mean, the, the glory of God was on him so bright, you know, that his face shined. His clothing was as, as white as the light. God's glory was all around him. He allowed these three to be and see the transfiguration. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. Now, if you remember going back here several weeks ago, We said, whenever we pray, we should always include what? If it's your will. And he says, if it's your wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to hear him. This is the second time that this was heard from heaven. What was the other time whenever, whenever they heard the voice say, this is my beloved son? Whenever John the Baptist baptized Christ and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. This is the second time you hear that, that Christ was pleasing his father. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. This is one place that these three got to go to and got to see. No other disciples got that privilege. We also go to Mark chapter 5. And you know the story of Jairus' daughter who uh, uh, lay, and she was sick unto death as the Bible tells us. And he went to get Jesus and to talk with him. And Jesus was on his way to that to his house whenever he met the, the uh, woman with the issue of blood. But now we come on down in uh, uh, verse 35. He says, And while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, as Jairus's house, and said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Don't be afraid. Just believe. And he permitted no one to follow except Peter, James, and John. These three confidants, he had them to to go with him uh, 
to the house. He's, then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. See, they were making fun. You know, sure, she's just sleeping. She's dead. There's no life in her. And they made fun of him. So what did Jesus do? But when he had put them all outside, see, he got rid of all of the unbelief, moved them out, he took the father, the mother, and those who were with him. And who was that? Peter, James, and John, his confidants. And they entered where the child was laying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and, say, uh, and said that something should be given her to eat. See, now, Jesus was still training these disciples, these three that he had picked out, he is still training. He wanted them to see the power of God. He wanted them to experience it and to realize who Jesus is. Now, we want to go into the first of these. We're going to look at, at Simon Peter first and then James. And since John is in the triumvirate, but he's also the one, we'll wind up with John looking at the inner circle and looking at his characteristics. Uh, Peter called Simeon, which means hearing. Jesus gave him another name. What was it? He said, you'll be called Cephas. And, uh, uh, you know... The name Simon is a very common name, a Jewish name in, in the New Testament. He was the son of Jonah, and his mother, uh, we don't know, she's not named in Scripture. He had a younger brother called Andrew, and Andrew is the one who brought Peter to Jesus, if you remember last week's lesson. He was a native of Bethsaida on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, he's a fisherman by trade. His father probably died while he was still young, and he and his brother were brought up under the care of Zebedee and his wife, Salome. Now, these four youths, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, spent their boyhood time together, their manhood. You know, they were, they were always in fellowship. They knew each other. They were close. Simon uh, and his brother uh, seemingly in, uh, enjoyed advantages of religious training. Uh, they were instructed in ways of the Scripture because all of these were looking for the Messiah. They had heard John the Baptist talk about the coming of the Messiah, and they were looking, if you remember last week's lesson, they were looking for the Messiah. Uh, they probably didn't have any training un, in, in the law under the rabbis, but they did know about the Scriptures and about the coming of the Messiah. Simon himself was a Galilean, and when, when I say Galilean, that speaks uh, a lot right there, because they had a marked character of their very own. It's just like saying, someone is from South Georgia. What gives you away when you go to the north? Your accent, your mannerisms. Uh, you can hear someone speaking that, boy, you can tell they're from the South. <laughs> uh, you hear someone else speak very, 
they speak very fast and very clear. Boy, that northerner needs to slow down a little bit. So I can't understand it if it's very fast. So we, the, the Galileans had a marked character of their own. They had a reputation of being uh, very independent-minded. They had a high energy, which sometimes led them into some turbulence, some trouble. It got them in trouble. Peter was... Uh, one, whenever you, you mention his name and you say, well, what was uh, Simon Peter like? First thing you think of is what? He was loud, boisterous, headstrong. You remember all of, all of this is typical of a Galilean. They were very frank. They had a very transparent disposition. And but with all of the bluntness that they had, and with all of the impetuosity, with all of the headiness and the simplicity, they were genuine Galileans. And that's Simon Peter was a Galilean. If you remember, uh, his speech is what betrayed him as a follower of Christ when he stood in the judgment hall. It betrayed his own nationality and that of those co-joined with him on the day of Pentecost. Because they said, you know, are not these Galileans that, that, that is, is talking to us and you're talking in the different languages? It would seem that, that Peter was married before he became an apostle, apostle because his wife's mother is referred to in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that gives us a little bit about, about Peter. He appears to have settled somewhere in uh, Capernaum when Christ came into his public ministry. And he may have reached somewhere beyond the age of 30. Now how many people, when you think of the disciples, you just just thought of them always, as you read about it, you thought them as elderly guys. Anybody? Some of you, thought, when you first read, yeah, I see hands coming up. When you look at it and you, you think of the maturity and what and all went on and what they did with Christ and all they did in the preaching, you think, boy, these were elderly people. No, these were young people. I mean, here, here Peter is one of the oldest and he may have reached 30. John was the youngest of them. He was in his 20s. Oh boy, don't tell me God can't use young people. Uh, but when, when we think of them now, here you are, he's just, may have reached, you know, the age of 30. So uh, he had a large house and it was big enough uh, for the home of his brother Andrew his wife's mother, and also Christ seems to have stayed with him at, at, at some point, according to Mark chapter 1, as well as his own family. So he had a, a big house, possibly a two-story house, we don't know. But at Bethabarba, or at Bethany, beyond Jordan, John the Baptist had given testimony concerning Jesus, and he referred to him as the Lamb of God. And Andrew, if you remember last week's story, Andrew, on hearing this, Andrew and John, they followed Jesus immediately. Whenever John the Baptist brought these two, and whenever uh, John the Baptist introduced them to Christ, they immediately followed him. And... Uh, they, they, they looked at Jesus because they knew in their studies of, uh, of the, the scriptures and, and listening in the synagogue, they, they heard about the, the Savior that would be coming, and they knew that Jesus had to be the Messiah. And then if you remember uh, later, uh, Jesus 
recognized Simon and he declared that hereafter he would be called Cephas, an Arabic name corresponding to the Greek Petros, which we talked about last week, a mass of rock detached from the living rock. He said, thou art Peter, thou art Petros, thou art the stone, and upon this rock, the rock Petra, being Jesus Christ, he said, I will build my church. So you see how much Christ thought of Peter. Uh, as we go on down, and uh, as he is called to the rank of the apostleship, finally Peter becomes not just a regular fisherman, but he becomes a fisher of men. And out on the, the seas of the world of, of, of humanity is where he began to preach the message of Jesus Christ. And there was one time uh, Jesus began to speak of his sufferings and what was going to happen, what was going to take place. And Peter rebuked Jesus. Now that takes a lot of gall, doesn't it? Peter actually rebuked Jesus for what he was saying. But then Jesus rebuked Peter more harsh than he had ever talked to any other disciples. And he corrected him. Now, is it wrong for a parent to correct a child? No. Is it wrong for a heavenly father to correct his children? No. If you love them, you'll correct them. Now, Pastor talked about that this morning. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, our illustrious Sunday school teacher back here this morning talked about this very thing in pushing the right button. Sometimes we have to do that. And the, uh, the rod of discipline sometimes is needed. But why do you do it? You know, did you always hate it when they said, now this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? Man, I, I, that's a whole oh, no, it's not. Because it hurt. But I haven't forgotten those times. And it sure made me remember a lot. And the next time I thought I would do that again... I thought twice and decided not to do it. I didn't want the rod of correction again. But Jesus corrects Peter here. And it's because he loved him. Remember, Peter is still in training. He is still in training in all of this. On his return to Capernaum, the tax collectors, they collect tax for the temple and they came to them and reminded them that they had not paid their taxes. So Jesus turned to Peter and he said, go down to the lake, catch a fish, take the coin out and go pay our taxes. Now the temple tax was a, was a didrachma, which is half of a shekel. Now what he did when he went down to the uh, lake and he caught the fish... It was a stator. The coin that he got was referred to as a stator. It's an ancient Greek gold coin or silver coin. And it's exactly two and a half shekels. And the tax was half a shekel. So when he got this, it had one shekel, the exact amount that they had to pay the taxes. Why do you think that he told Peter to do this? Was it for the Lord's good? No. He's still teaching Peter to listen to what he has to say and to know that he is the Christ. To know that he is the Savior. And Peter is still learning 
What the master says do, we can do it. And it will always be correct. It will always be just what we need. How many of you have ever had uh, the Lord to give you something? You're praying for something. He provides the need right down to the amount, whatever you need. Anybody ever had? Cool. A lot of hands. Uh, I've, I've had that done. When I was at University of Georgia, and I didn't have anybody funding me at the University of Georgia. I was on the scholarships and, and, and all, all of this. And I remember one quarter, I, was, I ran out of money. And I was right down to the bear, and I had about three weeks to go. And I thought, gracious, I can't go home. i got to finish up. But I don't have the money to stay here. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you know what I did? I prayed. I prayed seriously. Now, there's a difference between just praying and praying seriously. I prayed. And did you know the very next Sunday... I, was, uh, the, I went to the Athens Church of God. And I, I worked with the young people there and just in the church the whole time I was at University of Georgia. And one of the uh, elders came in and got me and took me out. He said, I need to talk to you for a minute. And I thought, oh, that's unusual. Church is still going on. So I went out and he talked to me for a little bit and I come back in. I didn't know he was getting me out for some reason. And at the end of the service, the pastor said, uh, we want to do something right quick. He said, would Coleman Peacock please come up to the front? Well, I wilted because I thought, you know, what in the world? So I got up and went up to the front. And he said, Brother Peacock, we wanted, the church just wanted to show you how much we appreciate you and what you've done while you're here at the University of Georgia and uh, with our young people in the Sunday schools. And so we've taken up an offering for you, and we want to give this to you this morning. I had told no one. I didn't tell anybody but God. And they gave me the cash money. That took me the three weeks, and I think I had something like $3 and something left when I got home. Now tell me God doesn't meet your needs. He still does. And he is showing Peter this. He said, he's showing him, if you will trust me, I will always come through for you. And he has done that not once, but many times. And, of course, then they were with him at the transfiguration. And uh, they, they got to see what happened there. Then he's found in John's company early on the morning of the resurrection. Uh, Peter was one of the first ones there. They went into the empty grave. They saw the linen clothes that were laying there. And to him, the first of the apostles, our risen Lord revealed himself to him. You see how much that, that, that God loved Peter and is still training him of who he is. So when Jesus ascended and went back to the Father, he wasn't left alone because the Holy Spirit was with him. You remember when we talked about the 120, everything changed then. Everything changed when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was showing Peter that that he favored him and that he had forgiven him and he wanted to restore him. And then he's seen on the Sea of Galilee and three times he looks at him and he says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He asked him three times, lovest thou me? And after this scene, at the, the lake, we hear nothing about Peter till again he appears at the ascension. And it was he, he who, who was the one who proposed the vacancy, remember, that uh, Judas had left on the, and the disciples. And it, it, he is the one who said, this needs to be filled. And they went through and did all of that. All of this 
completed a change in Peter. Do you remember what he was like to begin with? Boisterous, bold, uh, adamant, high-headed, hot-tempered. But all of this time, Christ is molding him. And his character is changing. And he's making him into what he wants him to be. After the miracle at the temple gate, uh, persecution arose again to the Christians. And of course, Peter was cast into prison. And you, you've heard that story. He defended himself. He de defended all of his companions before the council, the Sanhedrin. And then they had another breakout of violence against all the Christians. And all of the disciples were put into prison. And then during the night, they were all delivered. And then the next morning, they were found doing what? Teaching and preaching again on the streets. A second time, Peter defended them before the council. And uh, this is... When they had, the Bible says, when they had called the apostles and beaten them, then they let them go. But all of this Peter went through. You think with, with all of this, with Christ right there, Peter's life would just be great. No, sometimes there's sacrifice to be made in the Christian life. People will not always appreciate you and like you for the stand that you take for Christ. And the people in Christ's day were no different. After laboring for some time in Samaria, Peter returned to Jerusalem and reported to the church there of all of his work. Then he remained for a period of time during which he met Paul, the Apostle Paul, Peter met him for the first time since Paul's conversion. And then leaving Jerusalem again, he went forth on a missionary journey to, to Lydda and to Joppa. And he's also, uh, is next called to open the door for the Christian church. He is the one that went and talked to the council about uh, Cornelius, admitting Cornelius, a Gentile, into the fellowship. He was there at Caesarea. This was Peter that did all of this. And he also uh, was cast into prison by King Agrippa. But in the night, if you remember, an angel of the Lord opened the prison gates and he went forth and found refuge in the house of Mary. All of this happened to Peter because he loved Christ so much. And he was so close to him. And you may be thinking, well, boy, if that's what it's like to follow Christ, I don't want to do that. No, you want to be as close to Christ as you can possibly get. Because even in the midst of conflict, he'll take care of you. And this is what he was telling Peter the whole time. You know, uh, follow me. I'll take care of you. And later on, uh, he meets Paul again whenever they were talking with the council and, and of the apostles and the elders uh, in Jerusalem. And after this, he appears to have carried the gospel to the east, labored for a while in Babylon and Euphrates. And where and when he died, we don't really know. Now, historians give us a little bit about it, probably between the years of AD 64 and 67. We don't really know how he died. Tradition tells us, historians tell us, that he was probably crucified. And you've heard the story. He was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. And I can't confirm that. That's just, you know, that, that's a history. It's what tradition tells us. But this is all with Peter. Now we go to James the Less. Now we have James the Less and James the Greater. Why do you think we would call him James the Less? Because he's younger. He's not a big guy. 
He's smaller in stature, so to separate the two of them, they referred to him as James the Less, the son of Alpheus, Orclopus, and the brother of Christ. Now, we, we find James, now, if you, you look, there's only one book in there on the book of James. And if you, if, when you read that, in fact, you were referring to it this morning. You know, he is very uh, easy to understand, very plain. There's not but, what is there, six chapters in James or something like that? Not very long, but he says a lot in that period of time. Uh, but James, probably somewhere in the spring of the year of 28, is whenever he was called uh, together with his, his younger brother Jude, if you remember the last week's lesson. And at some time in the 40 days that intervened between the resurrection and the ascension, the Lord appeared to him. And then 10 years later, some 10 years later, we find him, James is on the level of Peter, so the historians tell us. And he is deciding on the admission of Paul into the fellowship of the church at Jerusalem. And James was on that council. And we find him later on. James was either equal to or sometimes superior to the very chief of the apostles, Peter. So he was a very prominent person. Don't know a whole lot about him. But according to tradition, this sounds a little, little harsh, but according to tradition... He died when he was thrown down from the temple by the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees hated the Christians. They hated Jesus. They threw him down and he was stoned and his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. That's a horrible, horrible death to go through. But now these are, are two. We have one left, John. But let's look at just a few of the characteristics here that, that we find. Uh, they followed Jesus to the places of glory and suffering. Now, if we're looking at the characteristics of this, of this proximity circle, they followed Jesus not only when it was good times, but in the bad times. They followed him always. They were confidants of Christ, totally committed to Him, totally committed. Christ trusted them with greater insights than any of the other disciples or apostles. Has God ever trusted you? with insights that others may not understand. He trusted them with greater experiences than others. You see, before Christ can do all of this, you have to be a willing vessel. You have to be one who says, I want to draw closer to the Lord. I want to be closer to God. I want what he wants me to have. And sometimes that means leaving home. I shared with you before in this study that Bonnie and I, whenever we left here and went into the ministry, it was very difficult to do in one way, but it was easy to do in another. Because God was dealing with me about ministries. God was dealing with Bonnie about ministry. I had also asked for a particular sign. Is it okay to ask for signs? Yeah. And I remember on Wednesday night, we left here. We went home. I had already told them at school I was head of my department. And I told them I may not be coming back. And they didn't believe me. And uh, the phone rang. After church, and I answered the phone, 
And I remember Bonnie looked at me in the hallway. She come down. She said, are we leaving? And I shook my head, yes. Because God had just answered what I had been asking. But I didn't ask anybody else. I only talked to God about these matters. It was hard. My friends were here. My best friend in the whole world, Wayne Baker, was here. We had a ruckus together. I mean, we had a great time together. It was hard from that standpoint. But it was so easy from the standpoint that God was opening the doors and saying, here it is. Uh, I need you to do this. You know, I want you to do this. I'm opening the doors. Are you going to walk through? So Bonnie and I, all of our life, we prayed, Lord, you open the doors. We'll walk through it. And it's not always easy. But Christ entrusted us with some things through the years that we would never have seen had we not followed closer to him. See, they saw Christ in his darkest hour. They saw him in the Garden of Gethsemane when his uh, sweat became as huge drops of blood. They saw him as he was crying, but they also saw him in his greatest triumph. They were right there at the resurrection. He arose like he said he was. He, he, he would, and he ascended back to the Father just like he said he would. Now we go to the one. We'll just go right into it. This is the last circle. The person who was closest to Christ. And why was, why was he such a friend of God? We're going to look at it at the conclusion. Uh, but this, this is the close one. This is the, the one. Uh, the one who followed Christ, he followed him at least to one place that none of the 12, other 12 got to go. See, the one, John, is the one that sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. John listened closer to Jesus' words than anyone else, and as a, as a result, he recorded more of them than anyone else. The one was the go-to man when Jesus' disciples had a question they wanted to ask of him. And John spotted Jesus on the shore when no one else recognized him. It was John. The one, John, followed Christ to at least one place that none of the other disciples or apostles could go. And you remember that on the Isle of Patmos. Had John not followed the Lord and been so close to the Lord, he might not have gone to the Isle of Patmos. And he might not have been the one that God spoke to directly and gave the revelation that we have now in Scripture to us that tells the prophecies in the future. He went further and God entrusted him more than any other disciple, any other person. Now let's, let's look at, at, at uh, this apostle for just a moment. He's the son of Zebedee and Salome. Again, a native of Bethsaida uh, in Galilee. He was a Galilean. He was a fisherman, uh, just like Peter. Uh, in John's character, though, there was an admirable mixture of gentleness and force at the same time. The picture that the Bible gives to us about him is that he had a very peculiar charm. He was much at peace with himself. He was an humble person. He was full of charity. And John was full of love. And he taught that to the churches. He was affectionate. He was very meditative. Uh, he had a spiritual character. Uh, he was vigorous. He was decisive. He could make decisions. And though 
very amiable person. He was firm and he was fearless. This is John. He was present at the scene of the Savior's crucifixion, just as, as Peter was. He also was early to the tomb of the Savior. And after his ascension, he proclaimed the gospel very boldly in Jerusalem. Though he was imprisoned, he was scorched, and he was threatened with death, he still preached the gospel. He had a remarkable devotion to Christ. And it was this devotion along with his ambition that, that Christ loved so much. He is supposed to be the youngest of all of the disciples. Uh, isn't it amazing? The youngest of all of these are the ones, is, is the one that was the closest to Christ. Uh, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Uh, but whenever John directed him to Christ, he followed Christ immediately. He detached himself and followed Christ. He was a very zealous, a very loving disciple. And at the Last Supper, he reclined next to the Savior. And to his care, to John's care, Jesus, on the cross, committed his mother to John's care. Now that's thinking very highly of someone. Together with Peter and James, he witnessed the transfiguration. He also witnessed the agony in the garden. And after the ascension of the Lord, John continued to stay there in Jerusalem where he was one of the chief pillars of the church. He moved to Ephesus later and he spread the gospel in Asia Minor. And after the death of, uh, of Paul, he still expounded the word. About AD 95, he was banished, probably by Domitian, to the Isle of Patmos, where he had the visions described in the apocalypse. This was John, we know him now as John the Revelator now. He afterwards went back to Ephesus and he lived to a great old age so that he could scarcely go anymore. Whenever they come to take him to the assembly, his disciples would come and pick him up and take him. He couldn't stand in the congregation and preach and expound anymore. But he would always tell them, little children, love one another. This was his message. And then when they would say, well, well uh, John, every time you come into the temple, you're saying love one another, he would respond to them. He said, this is what the Lord commands you. And this, if you do it, is sufficient. Love one another. Love the Savior. Love one another. He died at Ephesus in the third year of Trajan, A.D. 100. And uh, Epiphanius tells us that he was at the ripe old age of 94 years. And he died a natural death. The closest one to the Savior is the only one who faced a natural death. All the rest of them, uh, you might say, were sacrificed, gave their lives, you know, for the Lord, except John. Now, he left with us the Gospels, and he left with us the, uh, the Apocalypse, the, uh, the Revelation, which bears his name. He left the Epistles of John, the first, second, and third uh, of these that he left. So he did more of the writing on all of this than the rest of them. Now, what makes John so special? 
What are the characteristics here? Have you seen his characteristics as compared to others as we've come through the circles? You see how it comes down? Now, let's just take a look and finalize. What did it look like? By this, uh, all men know that you're my disciples and that you have love. If you have love, th this, was his, this was his key theme. If John had a theme, it was love one another. Love one another. And we look at the characteristics. He had an amiable mixture of gentleness and force at the same time. He was a man of peace, not of war. He was full of humility, charity, and brotherly love. His spiritual character was affectionate and meditative. He was vigorous, and he was decisive. He was firm, fearless, and bold. You're probably wondering, how can you be all of these things in one person? John was. He was imprisoned, beaten, threatened with death, like all the rest of the disciples. But yet his theme was, Love one another. He had a remarkable devotion to Christ. How is your devotion to Christ? Sometimes, you know, we can ask ourselves, you know, things aren't going just right, and we wonder exactly where we stand. Then, as Pastor preached this morning, look in the mirror and see what's looking back at you. What is your devotion? He was the youngest of the disciples and the apostles. He had a, Christ had a very close friendship with John. He was the one who uh, sat by Jesus at the Last Supper. And to his care, he committed, uh, Jesus committed his mother. This was the apostle John. And now, let's look for just a moment in, in, in the conclusion of all of this. Desiring more of God. This is what we've been talking about. Our desire for God is a gift that we must regularly open and engage in if we are to fully realize and enjoy it. It's a gift. While salvation is an unconditional gift of God's grace, some intimacies with God come only with a relentless pursuit of Him. Have you pursued Christ? Yes. Author and pastor A.W. Tozer, he warned against the rigid and overly structured approaches to God and faith. He said, the whole transaction of religious conversion has been made mechanical and spiritless. We must remember that God is a person and as, and as such can be cultivated as any person can. And we know we say, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. But see, God sees us for who we are in our humanity. And whenever a child comes to you, say, Brother Carl, a child comes to you or one of your sons comes to you and says, Dad, I love you. How do you feel? It just makes you feel good all over, doesn't it? It just makes you, uh, you, you can't explain it. And it's the same way with our Heavenly Father. How many times have we stopped during the day and said, Father... I just absolutely love you. I just thank you for taking care of me. I thank you for what you've done. That. And in other words, it draws you closer to the Lord, but it also draws the Lord closer to you. The promise of Scripture tells us, James 4 and 8, come near to God and he'll draw near to you. Make no mistake, there's one place 
and one place alone to which Christ wants you to be when it comes to him. And that is he simply wants you to be closer. Remember this. Followers of Jesus refuse to follow at a distance. Those who really love him and pursue him refuse to follow at a distance. If you're not moving closer, it could be that you're moving away. And I told you when we started, you know, with the proximity circles of Christ, with all of these eight, as we move closer, if you're not careful and become stalemate, you begin to drift backward. So be careful. We always want to be drawn closer to the Lord. And I have to ask you, are you moving closer to Jesus? Are you still have that momentum that you had whenever you first got saved? Are you following close to him? Where are you in your relationship with him? I'm talking about a daily relationship when there's nobody else around. There's nobody but just you. What do you do? Do you talk to him? Do you read the word? Are you pressing in? Are you leaning on his breast as John did? Are you looking in the storm to see if it's him in the midst of it as they did on the stormy sea of Galilee? What is your desire? Now let me, let me finish with this. And this is the part that I, I wrote yesterday and, and finish this up. I thought if we we're talking about drawing closer to the Lord, how do you do that? And what I wanted to look at, if I go back to 2 Chronicles 7 and 1, it talks about when Solomon built the temple. The temple of the Lord was finally built. David didn't get to build it. His son, Solomon, built it. And he said, when Solomon had finished praying, in 2 Chronicles 7 and 1, when Solomon had finished praying, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The glory of the Lord is His presence. When's the last time you felt the glory of the Lord in your life? When God occupies a place, His glory is evident. It's unmistakably evident. God has high standards for where he will make his presence known. He does not respond to our whims and he does not come on our terms. We come on his terms. Solomon longed for the presence of, of God. He wanted it to be obvious in the temple that he had just spent so many years building. He had spared no expense in building the temple. He, he, he spared no efforts in building the temple. It was a magnificent building that he built for the Lord. But yet he understood one thing. Constructing a spectacular building is no guarantee that God will choose to inhabit that place. And he knew that. So what did he do? Solomon wanted the Lord to know that it was built for him. And he wanted him to dwell there. So Solomon prepared himself, so the scriptures tell us, and the people in the hope that God would favor them. And then the priestly choir began to play instruments and praise in reverence, praise to God. In uh, Chronicles chapter 5, Second Chronicles, the priest sacrificed so many animals on the altar that they couldn't count them according to Second Chronicles 5 and 6. Then, after all it is done and the preparation is made, then Solomon prayed. And when he finished, it tells us, the scriptures tell us that fire came down from heaven 
and consumed their offering, which was telling them that God was pleased with it. And the fifth thing that happened, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, if you want the glory of the Lord to fill your temple, we are no longer in the temple that they had in the Old Testament. Because our bodies, they're what? Our body is the temple of the Lord. We are under a, a new period of grace here. Our body is the temple of the Lord. And just as Solomon had to prepare the temple and he prepared the people and himself for God's glory to come down, we must do the same thing. Prepare ourselves. And then when we pray that the glory of the Lord will fill the temple and it's still possible today. Amen? I said, amen, it's still possible. There is no mistake. When God inhabits a place, God's glorious presence fills the place, and it's impossible to carry on business as usual because the last thing they did is said God's glory was so overpowering in the temple, in Solomon's temple, that the priest could not carry on their normal activities. And whenever the glory of, the God, of God fills your human temple, you can't carry on business as usual. There is a desire there that you want to please the Lord. The New Testament teaches that our lives are the temple. We are the temple. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, we cannot assume that just because we know the Lord or we come to church that our lives are pleasing to Him. And like Solomon, we must thoroughly prepare ourselves to do that God's, what God chooses to reveal in His presence in our lives. We must get back and be drawn closer to the Lord. The day that we're living in, Christians, churches have drifted. We drift into complacency. I mean, it's, uh, what do we do? We get up, we go to church, we sing a song, the preacher will study his heart out, preach a message, we say amen, get up and go home. How many times through the course of the week do we say, God, fill this temple with your glory? But we have to prepare ourselves for that. We have to seek his face. Who is this Jesus? At the center of the circle. And where are you in the proximity circles of Christ? Are you close? Are you far off? Are you seeking him? Do you want to be drawn closer? I've gone. We started a little late and I've gone over. I knew this was going to take a while to finish tonight. But we've gone through eight circles of the proximity circles to Christ. And we've seen from the world... All the way into the one and the characteristics of him. And I hope that this has caused you not to point your finger at someone else and, and say, oh, they're not very close. No, I hope it has caused you to look in the mirror as pastor preached this morning and to see the reality of yourself. Where are you? No one can answer for you. What are you like when you're by yourself, when you're alone? Are you drawing closer to God? And if not, it's your fault. Because we can be as close to God as we want to be. And the day that we're living in, we need to be very close.
Let me just ask questions now. Do you have any questions as we've gone through these eight circles? Something come up in your mind. Something that you want to, to say or a question. Anyone. Or are you sitting meditating on this and asking yourself, where in the world am I in these circles? Whenever I was preparing this and studying it, I, I did. Many times I would study this circle and I'd say, Lord, is this where I am? Then I'd say, this circle. I'd say, no, I've moved to this circle. Then I'd study this circle and I'd say, oh, Lord. Lord. And you ask yourself, where am I? I'm where I really want to be. We are free moral agents. It's one thing to say, I love God. It's another thing for people to look at it and for them to say, he loves God. Do your actions show it? Does your work show it? Pastor was talking this morning in James, and he was talking about, what was the scripture to be? In James, you were talking about this morning, we are to be doing the work, not just sitting by. If you really love the Lord and you're really involved, you're going to be working. Because when God, as big as he is, gets in something as small as I am, something has to give. Our Father... Thank you. Thank you for this study. Thank you for being with me these last few months and putting all of this together. Lord, thank you that your word is still so true. And Lord, your word still captures our attention. It's your word that cuts like a two-edged sword. It's your word that sears our hearts. It's your word, Lord, that makes us humble ourselves before you. It's your word that draws us closer to you, along with the moving of the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray, I pray that every person in this church and as a, as a congregate whole, Lord, that we will draw closer to you as things look so bad as far as society is concerned as far as the political realm is concerned may we look closer to you and as we draw we are drawn closer to you we begin to see the revelation of what's taking place around us and lord that in itself puts us at ease in your word Lord, I thank you for every person here. Thank you for your word. Lord, and as we go from this place, I pray that you will continue to deal with us, that you would draw us closer to you, and we would desire more of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.